Sometimes uh, it's beneficial to take a look at our religion um, as it's perceived from the outside. That is, to take a look at how outsiders view this thing that we call Christianity. Because at times we can slip into a complacency and a dullness that an outside perspective, a different look on things, can dispel. And it helps us to see our doctrines um, and our practices and even ourselves more clearly. Right? We can look at it and, and see what it is that we're actually doing. So it's sharpening. And that outside perspective is what we get in this psalm, particularly in verse 3. It reads, um, there in verse 3, it says, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So there's that outside perspective. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now these words are a quotation from the collective mouth of the nations. And here they conspire to free themselves from the reign of God. They liken his law to fetters meaning the chains and the manacles used to restrain a prisoner or an animal against their will. God's rule, in other words, is perceived to crush their freedom and dominate their lives. It is a tyranny with which they want to be free. Let us cast away this reign of God from us. And so it's interesting, the contrast between this psalm And the last one, what the blessed man delights in, namely the divine law, right? He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates in it day and night. So what the blessed man delights in here, the nations reject with contempt. They want nothing to do with it. One freely submits to the reign of God, while the other thrashes about violently to get free of it. And in that contrast lies this outside perspective that I've been talking about. The rule that we've submitted ourselves to, right, as Christians, we're saying Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I'm going to carry my cross, and I'm going to follow him, right? That lordship, that reign that we've submitted ourselves to looks like insanity from the outside. It looks like willingly accepting our own self-mutilation and denying our freedom in the name of some antiquated religion, right? That's the outside perspective. And so the question is, who's right? Are they right to think that we're ridiculous to submit ourselves to this reign of God? Or are we? Now, over a hundred years ago, a critic of Christianity, Emma Goldman, Uh, wrote this in an article entitled, The Failure of Christianity. She called it, The leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to do and to dare, an iron net, a straitjacket, which does not let him expand or grow. Now, the climate of opinion has changed somewhat since then, with some intellectuals, in fact, acknowledging um, a positive social function that religion has to play, even if they don't believe it, right? They still think it's probably a good thing on the whole. But her words there nevertheless hold true. And 
that opinion goes something like this, right? We have outgrown God. We no longer need religion and its teachings. Besides, most of it was oppressive and backward anyway. Right? It was responsible for all the bad things in history. So this narrative right, is one of liberation from the darkness of religion's tyranny over humanity to the light now of secularism. And so why would one choose to go back? We should be like the nations in verse 3, so they would say, let us tear these fetters away. Let us cast away these bonds. And it's a powerful narrative, right? The darkness of times past, of religion now to the light of secularism. Otherwise, right, it would have never gained such prominence. And what that narrative does is put the individual, it puts you, not a religion, not a creed, not a dogma in the driver's seat. It puts you free to determine your own life. And the claims that religion makes upon you, the claims that God would make upon you, are simply a power play. They're a means of control. Again, it goes like this. God, if there is one, wields this thing that we call the truth as a weapon, something to force you into submission. And not only him, right, but the church and other institutions too. The truth, this right way to live, is a means of control. It's a means of getting you down. There is no one truth. There is no universal capital T truth that stands independent of human construction. There's only, again it said, your truth. There's only what's right for you. The only right way to live is the way that you choose to live, right? Not what supposedly the scriptures say or the church says or anyone says. It's only what God says. So thus, according to this outside perspective, and just put, your shoes, put yourself in those shoes for a minute, according to that outside perspective, we're deluded. If you believe that narrative, right, we are. That's, that, that would be the case. We're carrying on with our moral scruples and our religious adherence while they live in unbounded and joyous freedom. They get to do what they want. They get to live life as they see fit. Now, I wonder, though, if that's not an entirely outside perspective. Um, For some, that supposedly outside perspective on the faith, that it's some sort of means of controlling you, some sort of means of getting you just to obey, um, if that perspective is actually the one that some of us might have or that we might have in regard to the faith. Right? So one, one remains a believer in, in the company of the church, not because there's a delight about it, as Psalm 1 talks about, right? Delighting in the law of the Lord. Choosing, just delighting to meditate in it day and night. Uh, but rather, choosing to hang in because one fears the consequences. Right, such a person has chosen to stay while the others have departed, but their disposition, the way they view things, is fundamentally the same at the bottom. Perhaps is the, the only difference is that they lacked the courage to leave that the others had. Right? They just said, I don't want any of this, I'm going away, but the others choose to stay because 
They were afraid of the consequences, right? And so is that how uh, things seem to you? Is your relationship to God a little bit like that, what's described in Psalm 3, one of control? Is your relationship to God merely that of master and his subject, the boss and his underlings? Does the desire to obey well up from within, or is it imposed from the outside, enforced upon a recalcitrant will by infinite power? Does the commandment seem to squelch life or to produce life, to rob joy or to, in fact, give joy? Now, such is the outside perspective. God's rule is oppressive. It's a means of control. It's domination. What about the inside one? What is the perspective in here that the scriptures advocate? Well, on the inside... We believe that the divine command and our delight in it is not imaginary, but real. And last week we spoke about the how of that delight. How to attain delight in the scriptures. And and that was through, we said, persistence. Not uh, Not about giving up when it's not rewarding, but pushing through in faith that ultimately there will be joy in our experience with the Lord. Now, this week, what I want to talk about is the why of that delight. Why, contrary to that other narrative, we are not deluded by living in obedience to God's commands. And the reason that our why, this inside one, is stronger than the outside one is that there is such a thing as capital T Truth. In contrast to this modern narrative, we believe there is such a thing as human nature, that there is a right way and a wrong way to use it. Moreover, we believe there's simply a thing called nature itself, that this world that we live in has a physical and a moral and a spiritual order ingrained into it. And that our lives ought to conform to this order. And we believe those things about ourselves, about the world, because we believe that there is a good and just creator who made it so. So his commandments then, telling us to live this way, to do these things and not those things, to follow this path and not that path, is not a means of control and domination, as some claim it to be, as we sometimes mistakenly believe it to be. Instead, God gives us his commands for our own good, as a means of our flourishing. The commandments of God point us toward our own fulfillment, the human experience as it was meant to be lived, and thus they are our delight rather than our terror. As John Webster so rightly put it, God's law is God interposing himself between us and our headlong rush to self-destruction. God nurturing us by educating us into the true form of human flourishing. So I'm not sure what our attitude toward God's commandment is, 
whether it's more in line with that outside perspective, or if it's more of this inside one, but it might need some adjustment in that for the better. For this is the love of God, John the Apostle says, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? They're not a burden upon us. His command is not a chain and a manacle that compels us against our will, but paradoxically a command that sets free. A restriction that leads to greater amounts of freedom in our lives. And that may seem paradoxical, right? This restriction that leads to greater freedom. But anything that is done well, or anything that's done in excellence, reflects that principle. So if one wants to play the piano, or let's just say any instrument, like one of the masters, um, they cannot go about doing whatever they want in their so-called freedom. Instead, they have to submit themselves to the rule of the craft. Right? They have to give up their freedom, so to speak, and submit themselves to the rules and constraints, constraints that teach them how to use the instrument properly. They have to learn the basics of the musical scales, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. they got to submit to it. And that holds for any craft or any sport or any skill, right? You have to lose your freedom to, in fact, gain freedom, a lesser freedom, one that lets you do whatever you want for a higher freedom, that of excellence and perfection. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he puts it this way, you have deliberately lost your freedom to engage in some things, in order to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom to accomplish other things. In many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. So one can thrash about on the piano keys of life, abusing the instrument, the music, and themselves in the process, or one can submit themselves to divine constraints, sacrificing their lesser freedom, just whatever I want to do, to attain a higher freedom, to live life as it was designed to be lived. Now, from a certain perspective, an admittedly childish one, God's commands do seem oppressive. I can't do what I want to do. I can't just go out and live however I want to live. But if we alter our perspective a little, the truth shines out. I will gladly turn over my way, my false way, to attain the true way. I'll hand over my babbling to attain eloquent speech. I'll turn over my stumbling, right, my freedom to learn how to run swiftly. And of course, I'll hand over my senseless noise to, in fact, learn how to play beautiful music. As our Lord says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So how wrong the nations are in verse 3. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, continuing on, the psalm is, in fact, more political than I've led on thus far. The nations, 
right? The nations rage against God's reign, and they conspire to free themselves from it. It's not necessarily an individual conspiracy, right? Something that happens in the heart of one lone person, but it's a global conspiracy. And it receives its outlet, its focal point, this rage does, in a very specific figure, the Lord's anointed, the Christ. And that's what the anointed means. It's just the Christ is the the Greek um, uh, translation for the anointed. So it's a messianic psalm that we're dealing with here in Psalm 2 that envisions uh, the nations conspiring against the Creator, or rather against the Christ and the Creator, to overthrow His worldwide dominion. Okay, And in fact, in its infancy, um, enduring the beginnings of persecution, the church understood this psalm, Psalm 2, to be unfolding in their time meaning it was prophetic when it was originally written. And moreover, they understood it in relation to Jesus, in relation to his arrest and his crucifixion. And as the persecution began, um, this is Acts chapter 4, when um, the Jewish leaders brought Peter and John before them and rebuked them and said not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer, threatened them severely, and then sent him away. The church got together, and they turned to this psalm, Psalm 2, for encouragement. And they took it up in the words of prayer, saying, um, now in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, Why do the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise a futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So that's in their prayer, and then they add, For truly, in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And then the prayer goes on to recount, obviously, what they did to Jesus. So in other words, the psalm, this raging of the nations, is about a very real conspiracy to murder Jesus, the anointed one and to stop his kingdom in its tracks. And so it pictures both Herod and Pilate, the Romans and the Jews, united against Jesus in order to retain their autonomy, to thwart his rule against them. And in purely earthly terms, according to appearances, their conspiracy against Jesus was successful. They got what they wanted. Jesus was put to death on a cross. And it seems that the nations had won and that the kings had freed themselves from his reign. So how does God respond to their conspiracy against his Christ? Verses 4 and 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs at their scheming and snickers his way into resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. They sought to overthrow the anointed one. But little did they know that in their plans, they had in fact established him. 
in his death and resurrection at the hands of the nations and the kings of the earth, Jesus entered into the fullness of his kingly ministry. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to sit upon the throne of the universe at the Father's right hand. And so what the nations had intended for evil, God intended for good. Through their malice and wickedness, Jesus made atonement and gathered to himself all rule and authority and dominion. Indeed, the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. So thus underlined in the psalm is the futility of the nation's scheming. The futility of the nation's scheming. God's decree cannot be overturned. And even the king's successes are turned into defeats. And at all, this futility is summed up in God's laugh. He does not take the kings of the earth and its rulers with the seriousness with which they take themselves. They are mere men, and they will die like men. And he is And he is the transcendent creator of all things. So God laughs at the nations and their kings because they're so far from posing a threat to his purpose. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And again, now, same chapter, verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their root as their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. So God's laugh cuts through the pretensions of our enemies and his laughter is our comfort. We cower, we are genuinely threatened by the conspiring of the world, but God chuckles, he laughs. And humor has that effect. It deflates its object, right? It undermines the seriousness of what is the butt of the joke. And sometimes, or rather someone who cannot take a joke is is typically a self-serious someone, always preoccupied with their grave importance. And so we rib them a little and tell them rightly, take a joke, right? Lighten up. And so a good laugh is powerful. And that's why we have to be careful about what we laugh about. Directed at the wrong thing, laughter can be harmful. Trivializing something that is not meant to be trivialized. Right? You often find that solid and substantial arguments are constantly defeated through the use of humor and scorn. Such and such a position can be made to look dumb and ridiculous and therefore can be discarded. 
So we need to be careful about not inadvertently deflating something that needs to be taken seriously. But that said, directed at the right thing, laughter is sanctifying. God laughs at whatever has pretensions to oppose his purpose. And so should we. And in that sense, laughter is an expression of faith. Not rash self-confidence, but a conviction that he who begun the good work will bring it to completion. And to go about so gravely is to treat one's enemies with more seriousness than they deserve. We walk by faith and not by sight, the apostle says. Mere sight, right, looks at a situation and it despairs. And rightly so, from an earthly perspective. It sees only the overwhelming odds and the cascade of failures. Consider for a moment the situation described here in the psalm. Israel was never a superpower. Israel was never really anything more than kind of a regional power. And most of the time it was some sort of vassal state under the control of a real superpower. And yet here is this psalmist defying the nations standing up against the entire world. From an earthly perspective, however, there's all this reason to doubt and to see the overwhelming odds and to come to despair. Again, the earthly perspective, it sees its own strength. It looks at the situation in comparison and it gives up hope. But faith, right? Faith sees light beneath so much darkness And it laughs in defiance. It knows that beneath appearances, there is the eternal, immovable decree of God. And it's tapped into God's laughter. I mean, I was astonished this week just at, at the, I mean, the situation, laughing at its enemies. And so there are two groups of people that I want to address. And the first group, To the first group, rather, pessimists, cynics, scoffers, the psalm says, lighten up. Again, note throughout the psalm the spirit of cheerfulness and confidence. Though the entire world is united against it, nothing can deter the everlasting decree of God. Christ is king, and he will accomplish his purposes. And if the one who's gathered us into his kingdom laughs, should not we, safe as we are within his care? So whatever conspires in the geopolitical sphere, in the natural realm, and indeed in our own lives, nothing, nothing can derail the divine purpose. Thus next time gloom and grumbling come knocking at the door, remember to laugh. Because nothing will defeat the Lord's purpose. One is the expression of faith, and the other is the expression of unbelief. Now, the, group, the second group I want to address, their situation is more grave, right? Making matters more difficult, making laughter more difficult. And I'm speaking here not of just a chronic pessimist, but someone facing real darkness in their life, whatever it may be. And the psalm doesn't ask you to laugh, because elsewhere the scripture says that 
like one who takes off a jacket on a cold day, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Instead, what the psalm encourages us is is that into a situation that would otherwise be outright despair and grief, it introduces a hope that brings joy. Now, it may not be outright laughter, as in other circumstances, but there is nevertheless a baseline of joy, that beneath all of the other things, there's something abiding to tap into that is not the same as one's circumstances. Again, God will have the victory. Though the nations and the kings surround us, whatever that is, they will be defeated as surely as Christ has rose from the dead. Think of the triumphant chapter, Romans chapter 8. He speaks of our salvation, glorification, past tense. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So, laugh, and if you can't laugh, then tap into that root of joy. So, we're encouraged to join the laughter. The nation's uproar, all this stuff that gets us up in arms, that bothers us, that vexes us, is much ado about nothing. And so a genuine cheerfulness is something of a defensive posture that we're given. Right? It's a way to empty our fears and our frustrations, to laugh at them, to undermine them, to make them nothing. But the psalm also enjoins an offensive posture, taking the battle to um, those who would oppose us. Again, it begins with the psalmist or the anointed one surrounded by enemies, and by its end, the situation is entirely reversed, and the psalmist mounts up and puts his enemies to flight. And really, in quite astonishing boldness, the psalmist says now, verses um, 10 through 12, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Right? He rebukes them. Take warning, O judges of the earth, those who would oppose him. He says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice, rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again, what confidence. Such is the offensive posture that the psalm encourages. God's immutable decree ought not only to steal us internally, but also externally, bracing our hearts with courage to proclaim the good news. Right, what does he say? Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. So the command has already gone forth. The earth and its fullness belong to the Christ. And there is nothing to fear on our part because we cannot lose. Right? The commandment has been given. God has spoken, and it shall be done. And and just consider for a moment, right, as a way to maybe give your faith something to kind of bolster it. Consider, if this were not so, right, if God did not command that Christ would have world dominion, this gospel message that we proclaim, it would have perished a long time ago. There's no way that we'd be here 2,000 years from the fact, still proclaiming it. Um, Do you guys remember uh, in Acts, 
Rabbi Gamaliel's advice to the Jewish leaders trying to stamp out the church. Right? They were persecuting him over and over. And, and then finally he stands up and he speaks to the council and he says, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. So, so leave the church, let them be. He says, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be, over, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may, be even, you may even be found fighting against God. If it's of men, it's going to come to an end. If not, well, you're going to be fighting against God and you've got no shot. So, again, if this universal dominion of Christ were a man-made thing, it would have been overthrown as countless other supposed messianic movements. It was stamped out, or at least tried to uh, be stamped out with such ferocity in its beginning. And yet here it is advancing by leaps and bounds across the globe. The church marches incessantly forward because God has willed its victory. It was uh, G.K. Chesterton who said some time ago, time and time again, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs, but each time it was the dogs that died. Right? The church always has a way of coming back because God has willed its victory. So here's where we want to get to. God's eternal decree that the Christ will have dominion ought to instill us with courage. With courage. Now, courage has a particular task to perform. A unique task that only it can perform. The business of courage is to face fear, and that specifically. To face fear, to encounter things and people and situations that make us afraid, but also it makes us able to overcome those situations. When we are not here exhorted to have courage simply for the sake of courage, nor nor are we encouraged simply to be daredevils, but to have courage in the unstoppable advance of the gospel. God has decreed it. Therefore, we ought to have courage. So it's not this self-willed thing. And it's not this self-asserting thing. Nor is it a, a venture, right? A wage against fate. It's rather a courage founded upon the divine purpose within history. So if one steps out, to, to, to venture upon this claim, it's not into an abyss. There's ground beneath. It's not a gamble, but it's a sure thing. Fortune, chance, fate, these are not Christian words. We believe in providence. The conviction that the events of history are under God's control, and that he has not left his creation to chance or to fate or to misguided freedom. His purpose, his good purpose will out. And his purpose is that Christ will reign over all things. So have no fear. Walk in boldness and confidence. And at this point, I think of, um, well, I think of our semi-fledgling church. It has not always grown as expected. It has not always done this or that as expected. 
But our situation is no worse than the one described in the psalm. And it is quite a fearful and depressing thought that CBC might not be around in a generation or two. But what does the psalm encourage us to do? Laugh at the thought. There's no reason for despondency or discouragement, but only confidence. And such confidence leads us to step out. We cannot fail. We can only succeed or otherwise learn. It leads us to step out and start a ministry as ridiculously ambitious as the Elijah family ministry. It leads us to start a children's ministry when we have no children. And on and on and on. And there's many pipe dreams that I have on the way. And I pray that you have your own. We need, however, courage, more boldness, more confidence in the gospel. That if we step out upon this message, it will not fail us. And with that, I want to end on a more personal note. It seems that in our own lives, there are very many reasons for fear and very many reasons uh, that make courage hard to come by. And as we prepare uh, to share in the supper with one another, let me invite in you to lighten up a little bit um, and to remember to hope. Because whatever it is, Christ has conquered it. It will not have the last word. Our sin, our situation, our grief, our sorrow. In fact, Christ says, just before he's going to head to the cross, take courage. Right? Take courage. I have overcome the world. So in these elements, we remember that victory. And we make present that victory. And we cast our minds toward that victory's completion when Christ will return when this mill will no longer be a sign but a reality and we shall be with him at the wedding feast of the lamb so it shall be done it is done so let me ask you now to step up and take um, the elements of communion um, the bread and the cup back to your table um, and just prepare your hearts for a moment and uh, we'll celebrate with one another in just a minute do that now